Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM, let's create. Well, you know, after the divorce, I was like uh, devastated. I mean, it was like a like a that was really a blow, because you know, it's like you feel like not only a failure, but then you're alone and and you're confused about who are you, what did I do, what how do I, and and I was single for ten years, and during that ten year period, I was in and out of different relationships, and that became the basis for when Harry met Sally which is, you know, how do men and women, are, how are they together, and how do they if, they, if they become friends, can they have sex, and if they do have sex, does that ruin the friendship? And all those questions started to plague me. That was Rob Reiner. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Sunday morning. Um, if you're listening to it, Sunday morning. Um, if you're not, I hope you're doing well on all the days. I sound a little sick, and it's because I am, at the time of this recording, a little sick. But I'm not going to stop it from the good news, which is that we've made it through a hundred goddamn episodes of this podcast. And uh, now we're on 101 with the one and only Rob Reiner. I gotta say, that's a good sentence. The fact that we've done 100 is cool, and the fact that Rob Reiner is on this show is something, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't have imagined that when we started it a couple of years ago. So, um, if you don't know who Rob Reiner is, you do know who Rob Reiner is. Off the top of my head, I'm not even gonna look at my notes or his IMDb. He uh, is the director of many films you've seen, including 
the Princess Bride. Stand by me, this is Spinal Tap. When Harry met Sally, uh, Misery, he played a pretty pivotal role in uh, Norman Lear's All in the Family as Meathead. You've seen him a lot in front of the camera and seen his work behind the camera for many, many years. His latest film that he has directed is called Shock and Awe. It goes back to the early 2000s and the Bush presidency as we uh, start a war that just seems to never end. Here's a clip from the trailer. Simply stated, there is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. They're dialing up the rhetoric on Iraq. Let's see if we can nail them down, okay? Let's get to work. Working on a theory that the administration has already decided to go to war and is now focused on how to justify it. It's not a theory. We're working on something important. That's why I'm here, to make you an offer. It's Joe Galloway. Wow. And even walks like he has a bronze star. What do you want to know? Everything the administration doesn't want us to know. A secret war planning group has been set up in the building where I work. And which building is that? The one with five sides. When you talk to someone like Reiner, whose career has uh, lasted, you know, more than half a century, it's hard to just sort of pick one spot to dive into. But since we only had one hour and not seven, I had to consolidate my, uh, my interests, so to speak. So we hit on everything from his early days on All in the Family to being the son of the great Carl Reiner to the weird time in his life when he was roommates with Albert Brooks, to how he has directed so many wonderful films with so many talented people. We get into a lot of it. And yet we begin, I think for the first time ever in this show's history, with uh, with the dick joke. And uh, I promise I did not make the dick joke. So, finally, here is Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner. Yes. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. How about you? You know, we just had a nice talk in the bathroom. We did. Um, we did. What I noticed is there was... Did you notice how big my penis was? I, I did yeah. notice. I wasn't yeah. going to lead with that. Yeah, okay. Um, you were even far away and I could tell how yeah, big how it was. Big. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Also, there was another person in there. I know. Oh, I, that that's right. And you just kept talking and I kept talking with you. And, oh. I, and I wonder, like, we were talking about the... Uh, the geopolitical yes climate of this country right and uh, i wonder what he thought of that he must have been like oh, is that rob reiner i don't know what he thought of <laughs> he was like rob reiner has a huge penis he did say i did notice that as on my way out muttered it yeah, yeah, yeah. he didn't you know under his breath he was anxious to tell yeah. you um i'm glad we started with a dick joke yeah yeah here i honestly unexpected from you well you never know you never know my you know people always ask me because uh, I do speak a lot, you mm -hmm. know, uh, do speeches, and I go in front of crowds and stuff, and they'll say, well, what are you going to say? I have a general idea of what I'm going to talk mm -hmm. about, but I don't really have a speech prepared. And they said, well, what do you, how do you know what you're going to say? I said, well, I, I get up there, and then I open my mouth, 
and then I see what comes out. So that came out, uh, you know, you said bathroom, and that's what came out. It's funny. That's exactly how I do this show. Really? Is uh, I have a few things I know we're going to talk about. but And you'll get to them at some point. We'll get to them when we get to them, Yeah, is how I feel. One thing I noticed uh, about your online presence, which I never thought I'd talk to you about. My Twitter. My Twitter, Twitter feed, yeah. You are very uh, overtly political. Well, you know, it's interesting because I I was never on Twitter. I mean, I only started like less than two years ago uh, when Trump got the nomination. That's when I started going on Twitter because I thought it was a way to, you know, make my my views known. And now uh, I'm gotten to a point where I'm very concerned about whether or not we're going to, uh, as we were talking about in the bathroom, whether or not the democracy is going to survive. So to me, at this point, it's about uh, energizing people to get out to vote. Mm. Is that is that a true concern you have? Do you think there's a, a possibility in the next, let's say, five to ten years yes. that we do not yes. survive? I, I, I don't know if it's five to ten. I don't know what it is, but I do believe there is a possibility that we don't survive. You know, we're 242 years old as of this last 4th of July. And, uh, you know, great societies, their sweet spot is anywhere from 250 to 300 years. There's no guarantee that democracy will last forever. Mm. And my feeling is if there is no checks, right now you've got some of the pillars of democracy are under attack. The free press is uh, being called the enemy of the people. You've got... uh, the rule of law is being attacked, and the one of the uh, founding precepts of the of the of American democracy is the checks and balances, and that has gone the way of cultism. So, uh, you know, unless the uh, Democrats can take control of at least one House of Congress, hopefully both, but if they can take control of the House of Representatives, then at least you can have hearings with. People in public so that the the president can be held accountable and at least the public can hear what is going on. We don't know if and when Robert Mueller is going to come with his findings on the the Russian conspiracy to take over the the country, to take the democracy. And uh, so if the forces of authoritarianism are allowed to get a foothold, a strong enough foothold, it may be very difficult to overcome. In 1965, you went to UCLA. Were you... Uh, 64, actually. Six, I started in 64. Started in 64. Yeah. You started your own theater company. Were you, at that time, equally political? No, I don't think I was as political. I certainly have always been political, but right. I've, beg- I've gotten more political as, as the time has gone by. Around the time of On the Family, that's in 1971. Right. I think most people know you, at least initially, if not from your movies, if, you know, from that character. Right, right. Did your politics, you know, inevitably bleed into that role? Well, it had to. I mean, you know, I was brought up, uh, my mother and father were both liberal Democrats, and politics was talked around the kitchen table. And um, so it it came by naturally, absolutely. How do you feel about the sort of mythology of that show, well, I mean, it was a great show. I mean, it it it, uh, it didn't uh, push the edge of the envelope; it destroyed the whole envelope. I mean, it was no nothing had ever been seen like that 
prior to it, you know, coming onto American television. So, you know, it was definitely groundbreaking in, mm-hmm. in that way. And, uh, you know, it would be nice if we could, you know, even now to, could have a show that actually honestly put forth both uh, Republican and Democratic ideas. But, you know, we're not in a we're not in a world now where we're discussing what is the best policy for this or that, whether it's healthcare, education, the environment, whatever the issues are. We're not talking about the conservative perspective and the liberal perspective. We're talking about what is true and what is not true. Mm. We don't even have a basis by which to begin a discussion because one side says this is true and another side that said this is true. And the truth of the matter is there isn't only one truth. There is only one truth, and that is you know, two plus two is five. I mean, you, I mean, you know, if you want to say that and you're going to be part of the, you know, the alt-right world, then that's your truth. But the reality is two plus two is four. So we have to all agree on that. And yeah. if we can, there's no alternative facts. I mean, facts are facts. <laughs> I have a question about a fact. Do you think people in the early 70s, the show came on in 71 and went till 79? Yeah. Do you think people in that time, in that era, were more willing to have those kind of conversations? I do. I do. Um, You think people were fundamentally different back then? Yes. And I think that, you know, oddly enough, when the internet started to explode and they called it the uh, information superhighway, I always thought that this is going to mean we're going to have a less informed public and not a, a greater informed public, because uh, it opens up uh, the world to all kinds of crackpot ideas. And we've seen it uh, utilized in this last election where you have uh, disinformation campaigns, you know, active measures campaigns, which is something that's been going on forever. I mean, it's not a new thing. Uh, you know, re- Russians, Soviets used to do it, but now it's weaponized because of social media. It's, you know, it's beyond on steroids. I mean, the, 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 the breadth and the power of social media is way beyond anything that we had before the internet exploded. Mm. Is, it, is it odd to think back on that time now and to think of the version of yourself that was acting in that show for those eight years? Well, I mean, you know, uh, there was still, I mean, we had division in the country, we always had it, you know, we had it certainly during the Civil War, but we had it during the Vietnam War. Uh, There was division, always division, but it always seemed like we were fighting over what we thought was right, not what, uh, like I say, what is fact and what is not fact. Eventually, the truth will come out and we'll find our way to the truth and, uh, Right now, I worry that that uh, we have the capacity to do that because of uh, the use of social media. Uh, well, you know, when the show ended in in seventy nine, you had a pretty, uh, I think, a shift in what you wanted to do in your career. You wanted to direct, and in that day and age, being a TV actor was um, very different. Yeah, than no, in it film. was it, you were looked down upon. Right. You're like a second-class citizen. Is that how you felt? Yeah. I mean, the, the movie people were the royalty and the TV people were the peons. <laughs> and um, I had always wanted to direct, even before that. Um, I directed my own improv group and I directed some theater. So that's something that I was always interested in doing. 
But the idea of, you know, coming from a sitcom and then going and making movies, it was like not heard of. Nobody, nobody did that. And so it took me a while to be able to get a foothold. And, and, and then a few other people, I mean, Ron Howard started out. And were, were you afraid to make that jump? I mean, was that, was that a, a hard time in your life? I wasn't afraid to make the jump because I knew I wanted to do it. But I knew it was going to be difficult because, uh, like I say, nobody accepted people from television doing films. Now it's, you know, it's been, you know, crossover for years. And now with great television, you're seeing real big movie stars are coming and doing television and all that. But it's, it's, you know, it's oddly, it's what drew me to, um, to doing a misery because I thought this is exactly what I've experienced, which is this idea that people want you to do a certain thing and they get very mad at you if you're not doing that thing. (laughs) And so when I read that book, I went, wow, this is something obviously that Stephen King experiences. He, has other kinds of things he wants to write, but he feels obligated to write something that's scary or has some supernatural aspects to it. Mm. You know, since you've mentioned this movie, uh, we're, we're going to open up a whole wormhole here. Okay. We have an hour, so I want to go through the ones that mean a whole bunch to me. Okay. And uh, let's just talk about what you remember about them. Okay. Also, here's a sign now I'm going to forget. But in When Harry Met Sally, he's reading Misery. Yes, Yes, what I did in all of my movies, I tried to put something, either a movie I was going to do or a movie that I had done, some element of it in, for instance, uh, in The Princess Bride, um, Mark Knopfler, who did the music for it, uh, said he would only agree to do the music if I would put the hat that I wore in Spinal Tap in that movie somewhere. Well, obviously it wouldn't exist in the fairy tale part of it, but if you look at closely in the stuff where he's talking to his grandson, you'll see the hat is sitting yeah. on, on the lamp. I rewatched Spinal Tap last night. Run me through, what is the energy like on that set? Well, it was interesting because uh, we knew what we were doing, but a lot of people didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> I had hired this guy, Peter Smokler, who's a really good DP, And I had hired him because he had shot a lot of rock and roll documentaries. As a matter of fact, he was in Altamont, the very famous concert, the Rolling Stones, where there was somebody was killed. And uh, so, you know, I said, let's, you know, he's shot rock and roll documentaries and he shot, you know, uh, performance footage. I said, let's get him in. So we're shooting this thing. And he would say to me, he says, what's funny about this? This is exactly what they do. I don't see what's funny. It's the same thing. I said, well, it's a little bit bent. You know, it's a little, you'd have to watch it. And, And then when it first came out, people said, I don't understand why you'd make a movie about a band that nobody ever heard of. Right. And that's so bad. And I try to explain, well, it's satire, you know, it's... <laughs> and also, keep in mind, I think for people listening, in case they don't know, that is your first movie. Yeah, that was the first. And, and, and people always say, well, you can't believe that you made a movie with no script, you know, it was all improvised. And to me, that was easier to do than having a scripted movie because I came out of improvisation and all the actors that we worked on with it also come out of that. So that was an easy thing. It was much more difficult when I did the sure thing, trying to figure out where to put the camera and, you know, and how did we cross the line and all that stuff. Checking off a bunch of boxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it painful at all to 
have that movie come out and it not being understood on your first at bat. I mean, it's like you talked about the difficulty of moving from TV to film. Now you have a chance. Now you make the movie and then people don't respond positively in the well, beginning. They, well, they, they didn't respond right away. I mean, it took a long time before they caught yeah. up to it. But I can think that's a nature of satire. I mean, I remember once, you know, I used to share a house with Albert Brooks. And, uh, you know, Albert would... When was this? This is, uh, gee, I think it's 19... I'm saying, I think 1969, uh-huh. I'm thinking, something like that. Anyway, you know, he used to go on the Carson show, on the Tonight Show. And he had this idea for a, a bit where he played a mime... And he was in black, you know, he was in white face with a black leotard. And he comes out and he never stops talking the whole time. He says, look, there is no rope here. I see it looks like I am pulling the rope, but there's no rope. And he does this like this. And it didn't get any laughs. Nobody laughed at it. And I just uh, laughed at it. Well, you did because, you know, you know, it's, it's Albert Brooks. But he was a young guy. And then two weeks later, he gets called back to do The Tonight Show again. And I said, Albert, what are you going to do? And he says, I'm going to do that mime piece, that mime bit. I said, yeah, but Albert didn't get any laughs. He said, yeah, but it's funny. I said, I know it's funny, but nobody laughed at it. Right. He said, yeah, but it's funny. And so he did it again, and this time Johnny Carson was hosting. The first time my dad actually was substitute hosting, but this time Johnny Carson was hosting. And it started out the same way. Albert got no laughs, and then slowly Carson is had never seen the bit, starts to laugh. I mean, he gets hysterical, and he literally fell off his chair. I, I, I was there. And the audience picks that up, and they realize, oh, I see, it's funny. He's making fun of mimes. He's not a bad mime. He's just making... And then the audience went. So it just takes a while sometimes for satire to catch on. Stubbornness. Yeah, well, people, you know, they have to try to figure it out a little bit. Have to be persistent. Yeah. By the way, what is a house like with you and Albert Brooks living in it together? Well, we had... we. We had two entrances. It was a like a duplex house, and he would enter his area. I would enter my, and we had two phones, you know, for each of each of us. And uh, whenever I would have um, a female friend visit, uh, you know, we'd go upstairs, and after we had finished our activities, the phone would ring in my in my uh, bedroom, and uh, it would be Albert. And he'd say, are you done? And I would say, uh, yeah. And he said, you want to go get something to eat? And then I ask her, and then we'd either go, go out and get something to eat. The three of you. Yeah. And then that was something. And then, you know, I was 22 years old at the time. And then we also, uh, we, we had a wall, one wall in the house that was covered with cartoons. Uh, there was a, a cartoon strip Nancy and Sluggo. Uh, it's an old, old strip, and it's done by a guy named Ernie Bushmiller. Mm. And it was the most unfunny strip I've ever seen. It just was, you know, nothing ever happened in the strip. It was just like, you know, it was like <laughs> nothing. And so Albert and I got into this long discussion about the brilliance of Ernie Bushmiller and what he was trying to say with these cartoons. And we did a treatise on him and, and uh, how uh, 
you know, how, uh, how philosophically deep he was and people just didn't get him. Mm. Well, uh, <laughs> people, uh, I I'll think... give you, I'll give you an example of, this is the funniest thing that ever happened in a Bushmiller cartoon. One panel. I like how this is all just flowing out of you, these memories. Well, yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like Proust. Um, so the first panel is there's, uh, uh, Nancy with a, 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 a box of cookies. And then she, the next thing, she's in, still with the cookies. And then the third thing, for, she's just walking with the cookies. There's nothing in there. And finally, she yells to her Aunt Fritzy, who's off camera. I mean, you don't see, you never see Aunt Fritzy. She's off stage. And she says, Aunt Fritzy, can I have some cookies? And Aunt Fritzy says, no, you can't, Nancy, and it's going to ruin your dinner. Please, can I please have some cookies? All right, you can have a few, the, just the crumbs. So then the next box, there's Nancy with a hammer, you know, hammering the cookies so that they're, you know, they're all crumbs. Right. And that way she can have all of them. That was the single funniest That's the best. strip they ever had. That's yeah. the best it ever got. Yeah, the best it ever got. Wow. I hate to segue from cookies to this, but I'm going to. That's in 69 where you're living with Albert. Right. In 1971, to backtrack a little bit, you got married that year and you got the show in 71. I wanted to ask, looking at that and thinking back on it now, how did you feel about everything happening in your life? I mean, those are two... Big, very different events unfolding in that time. Yeah. Well, actually, I was. We were thinking about getting married before the show, uh -huh. and then I got cast in the show, and so we had to uh, postpone it. And so that was what happened. And we were going to get married before, and then we waited till like April, I think, or something like that, after the show aired. I didn't really think too much about you know, how big these things were. To me, the show was, I thought, it'll go off after a few weeks because it's so far beyond anything than it had been on television. But I knew it was good. I was glad to be part of it. But I thought that'll go off. And then, you know, the marriage, you know, lasted about the same as the show. The a show decade. lasted eight years. The marriage lasted 10. That's pretty good. Yeah. 10 years. Yeah. What did you learn about marriage 10 years? I learned first that you it's not a great idea to marry when you're 22 or start living together when you're 20. You don't know who you are yet. You're right. still d developing and growing, and you don't know who you are. That's the main thing I learned. I'm keeping that in mind right How now. How old are you? 23. 23, yeah. Well, your brain uh, doesn't really settle in until you're about 25 or 6. There's still a lot of brain development activity that's happening right now. So I would say don't make any big moves until you get to at least 25 or 26. And a man really doesn't become, start becoming to man until he's like 35, 35, 35 to 40, yeah. So what's happening in your life and in the maturity uh, spectrum between 25 and 35? Because you get a divorce in 34, at 34. Yeah, 33, I think. Well, something like something that. Like yeah, that. yeah, like that, yeah. Do you feel like you're growing as a person at that time? Well, you know, after the divorce, I was like uh, devastated. I mean, it was like a, like a, that was really a blow because, you know, it's like you feel like not only a failure, but then you're alone and, and you're confused about well, who are you? What did I do? What, how do I? And, and I was single for 10 years. 
And during that 10-year period, I was in and out of different relationships. And that would gave the that became the basis for When Harry Met Sally, right. which is, you know, how do men and women are, how are they together and how do they... If they if they become friends, can they have sex? And if they do have sex, does that ruin the friendship? And all those questions started to plague me. Did the idea of feeling alone seem or being alone seem scary? It did at first. It did at first because I was used to, you know, from the time I left home at age seventeen, I was, you know, either. Uh, you know, at the summer theater or at UCLA and I had roommates and, you know, then I had roommates when I moved out and, you know, working for Smothers, I always had roommates and then I got married. And so I never lived alone by myself. And so at first it was very scary and then you get used to it and then you learn to like it and you like yourself and you like being alone. Is it dating at that age? Is that hard after 10 years of being married? Yes, it is. It's very hard. And that, like I say, that's what gave birth to when Harry met Sally. I mean, I would just, you know, I wouldn't know what the heck, you know, how to, how, how the heck do you do this? Yeah, that movie, I watched it also last night. Oh, yeah? I watched a lot of movies last night. That, that were what yours. else did you watch last night? I, I watched Shock and Awe, I watched right. Spinal Tap, and I watched this. So that's three. That's like, you know, that's pretty it's like good. six hours of movie watching. That, or that was five, a lot. Five and a half. Look, I had to come here prepared. I understand. I couldn't just like... I know, you know, it's a job. I can't dick around. Yeah. When Harry met Sally, so it, it feels to you... It feels to you. It is very much a representation of where yeah. you were at. Well, at least Harry, you know, Harry was. I mean, uh, Nora Ephron is the one that gave uh, Sally the the voice, the female voice. And, and without her, we could not, that movie would never have been great because you had to have both perspectives in order to explore how men and women do this dance with each other. Well, let me tell you, or rather, let me ask you now, can men and women be friends? No. And, and, and I'm going to clarify that because obviously men and women can be friendly and men and women can be friends. I ha- you have to define what friend is. To me, okay. a friend is somebody who, who you have a very deep uh, relationship with, which you, who, a person you can share anything with, uh, your deepest feelings and all of that. And you can be friends with a woman, but... There's always a sexual component to it, you know, in a heterosexual male-female relationship, there's always a sexual component to it. And so if you become deeply in, you know, involved with somebody, either you'll act on that sexual component or you won't. If uh-huh. you do, then you're now you're a couple. If you don't, one or the other person is going to find somebody that they can be a couple with. And once they do, you can no longer be friends with that person because they're going to be threatened. The new person in their life is going to be threatened by whatever uh, intimacy you have, even if it's not sexual, because they'll know that something else could happen. But, you know, you're going to hear other people say, or they're going to hear you say that Mm -hmm. and think, this is crazy. That is an antiquated idea. Of course, men and women can be friends. Well, they can. I'm just saying you have to define 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 the uh, the the uh, the playing field. Well, I actually think, for instance, I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a man and a woman. They're married, and that married guy has a really deep 
meaningful friendship with a woman, with another woman, there's no way that your wife is going to say that's okay. They, they, they just don't want that to be. And, and I'm, but I'm talking about, I'm not talking about being friendly with a, I mean, you can be friendly, but you can't share deep, intimate thoughts and feelings with another. And for the same reason, a woman goes out and hangs around with a guy and says all these things that are meaningful to her and everything, then it's threatening. Those things are threatening. I think, here, here's my take on it. Yeah. You've given yours, I'm going to give mine. All right. We're of totally different generations. Ooh, but, by, but By far. I'm not, I don't think you're entirely incorrect. I just don't think you're entirely correct. Okay, tell me where, where, tell me where my, my thinking falls down. <laughs> I want to hear. I'm glad to have you here, yeah. Rob. Um, I think if it's a heterosexual dynamic yeah. between a man and a woman, yeah. I believe at some point the two people come to an impasse. And at that point, the impasse is someone, either the man or the woman, is interested in the other sexually. In another person. No, no, no. In each other. Right. In each other. Right. And I think it has to be addressed. It either has to be acted upon. Uh, that's what I was saying. Yeah, I'm agreeing with you. Or, or, or it has to be uh, mutually recognized that, uh, or rather it has to be said that one party is not interested. Right. Then they have to say, well, can we still be friends after one person is kind of rejected, which is a tough thing. Right. I've had many friends on but, both sides where I've rejected right. someone. But now let me ask you this okay. question. Okay, but that's just, there's nobody else in the picture, just you two. Yes. And what I'm saying is you can be friends in that scenario. Yes. But the minute you meet another woman right. or she meets another man, uh -huh. the relationship that you have... That changes. It changes. It can't be. I think... I've done both where, where I've been with someone and not been with someone. I think this is a completely stupid, maybe uh, hack night you know, theory, yeah. but I think it's not a terrible idea to sleep with someone sleep with that friend of yours no. once and just to test the waters oh no 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 that's fine because most of the time you end up being like ah you know what now we know it's fine right. we're not meant to be together right it was an interesting experiment well, that's like that's like the relationship jerry and elaine had in seinfeld and that can happen too yes. but again i say that once another person comes into the picture <sighs> That will change that relationship. Although with Jerry and Elaine, there was always that feeling that they could end up being together. Yeah, that that they could reunite it or re-spark it or whatever. So it never faded, right? Because I, as I've said at the beginning, there's always a sexual component. What? It's either acted on or it's not acted on, but it's always there. Wouldn't it be great though if it just could be neutralized? If you could just like be neutered like a dog with a friend. Where it could just be like, okay, I don't have those feelings towards you. I don't think about it. That'd be nice. It, yeah. But you're talking about something that doesn't exist. Yeah. Okay. That's a wish. Well, wishful thinking is what sure, I'm, is what I'm I know, doing. Sure. I know. But I, I live in reality. You do. I try to. Well, welcome back. Here we are. Yeah. Do you have friends that are women? I have women that I am friendly with, but for instance... There are women that are part of our lives as couples and things that I like, that I would, you know, spend some time with. But 
I'm not gonna I'm not going to share intimate emotional thoughts, feelings, and so on with them. No. Right. Do they ask you of that? No, no, they don't, because there's a boundary, there's a line, you know, that you have to draw. Yeah. You know. When Harry met Sally, I mean, when you made that, actually, I was going to ask you more broadly, you've made over 20 films. Do you know when you're directing whether it's working or not? Do you have a barometer at this point? I, I know if it's working from my standpoint. In other words, if I'm getting what I want to get. Now, what I want to get may not be something that people are interested in, but at least I know I'm doing what I want. I can sense that I'm doing what I want to do. Really? Yeah. Is it usually from the actors that you're asking that of? No, it's, it's, it's to me, once the script is done, you're 80 to 90% there. I mean, that's the, that's the story you're telling. And so now it's just uh, executing it, you know, with, you know, hopefully you've cast good actors and you've got a good cinematographer and a production designer so it looks good and everything. But in terms of the story, it's pretty much there. And I've, you know, uh, so I'm not going to start shooting something unless it's the story I want to tell. What's a case of a film you've made where the script, you know, you believed in the script, but in the execution... You don't think it worked out entirely? None of them. None of them. They've all done, they all did what I wanted them to do. And now, like I say, people either like them or they don't like them, you know, whatever. Right. I get in, I've gotten great reviews. I've gotten medium, terrible reviews, all that stuff. But they all, none of them turned out in a way that I said, oh, that's not what I wanted. No. Huh. What have you learned about working with big movie star actors? Well, to me, it's not about movie stars or not movie stars. It's about actors. They're all actors. I mean, you know, people become movie stars because they're so good and they've got something that, you know, that is projected on the screen that makes people want to watch them. That just means they're really good actors. <laughs> and so you always just want to get with the best actors because they're going to help realize the material better than anybody. This kind of brings me to 1992 uh, when a few good men comes out. That's a movie that, uh, people immediately responded to. Did that feel great in the moment? Well, I knew we, you know, I had seen it as a play. Uh, Aaron Sorkin had written it as a play, and I was knocked out by the play. I mean, it was a very powerful play. And so we adapted it for the screen, and we made some changes. But, you know, I think all the changes we made were to make it even better. So I knew we had a really powerful piece and, you know, being able to get Jack Nicholson, and at the time, Tom Cruise, you know, he was a big star and uh, was perfect for the part. And knowing that we had, you know, Kevin Bacon and Demi and, you know, re and Kevin Pollock, all these great actors, right. uh, you know, it would be pretty, I'd be pretty bad if I couldn't make that <laughs> thing work. What do you think it is about you that actors trust? I think they, 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 the first of all, I would never make them do anything I couldn't do. You know, I, I'm, I'm a good actor. I'm not a great actor, but I can, you know, it's like a coach of a team. You know, I would never ask somebody to do something that's not something that you can do in that game. Right. You know, so they know that. And they also know that I've been in their, in their shoes. And so they feel comfortable from that standpoint. And then, you know, they've seen the work. And so they say, okay, I, 
I trust this guy. Trust this guy. Yeah. But is there a quality about you as a person? There's like a a trustworthy nature to you? You know, I don't know. I, I've heard, and what I do know that I like to do is create an atmosphere on the set that's fun, that people can feel like they can contribute, that they feel comfortable, they're relaxed. Because at the end of the day, that's what we have. We have the experience of making the film. The film, once it's done, is for the audience. Right. And that's for their experience. But our experience is the actual doing and making of the film. And you're spending a lot of time on it. So you want the experience to be a positive one. So I know I have those positive experiences on the on the set. And I think people, you know, like that. Is it hard juggling acting and directing? In yeah. The I, hate, I hate that. I mean, I've done it a few times and I did it in shock and awe, right. but I wasn't intending to do it in shock and awe. I was, that was Alec Baldwin was supposed to play that part. And, uh, we actually rearranged the whole schedule for him so that he could, uh, you know, leave on Friday so he could do Saturday night live, you know, cause he was doing Trump. And we had shot for a week with Woody Harrelson and Tommy Lee Jones and James Mars and all these. And on a Saturday, the day when he was supposed to shoot on Monday, I get a call from the agent saying he can't do it. He's not doing it. And I went, oh, my God, I didn't know what to do. I mean, because we'd been in the middle of production and we got two days. What was so, the reason? Well, he's, you know, you don't want to hear. It's not it. <laughs> He doesn't come off good in this story, um, but whatever, you know. So Michelle, who's one of the producers, she said, why don't you play the part? So I thought, okay, I don't which, know. Which, what by the way, of course that's the suggestion when you're two days away. Well, I mean, she shooting. thought to say that, and I thought, well, you know, I'm available, and, I, <laughs> and I'll work cheap, so... And I and I she gave me one bit of a, a direction, one bit of advice, because I'm playing a guy named John Walcott, very waspy, right? You know, editor. And she said, try to be less Jewish. Okay. So I thought that was good, good suggestion. Yeah, I think you seemed only uh, a little bit Jewish. <laughs> yeah. Well, movie. I can't get away from that. I mean, I was born in the Bronx, and I am Jewish. Impossible not to. Yeah. You know, that brings me the Alec Baldwin thing. This brings me to another. Th idea which is you were born into a family that was in show business oh i thought you were saying i was born into alec baldwin's family you know he has a lot of brothers but no, i'm not one of you them. not you're not one of them and also yeah. if you were i don't think he backs out of that movie no you never know you never yeah, know yeah you're right people people yeah. sometimes fuck over family in a way that's true that's yeah, true more willing to yeah well they can handle it um do you think being born into uh, you know a family that is working in the business did it allow you to keep I don't know more even keel through all of this? Well, I think watching how my father handled his career and handled his notoriety and fame and all that stuff, I think it did help because I saw him take things in stride and not uh, you know not get swelled head or whatever. And, uh, you know, I've had these conversations with Michael Douglas. I mean, you know, we're in a small group of people who, whose parents achieved at a very high level and whose the offspring did okay, too. So uh, it's uh, – but I think growing up in it, you, you, you gain a respect for what, what it is you do. And it is a job, you know. It's a job. And so you're doing it and you have respect for it. How do you not – what was the term you used? Get a big head. I don't know. You know, I, I think if you're lucky, you have people that have gone before you that, you know, lay the groundwork for seeing how you handle things, I guess. 
you know, even that response is measured. And, uh, well, I don't know what else to tell you. I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, who knows? I think fame, you know, can hit people. I remember Warren Beatty once said to me, uh, you know, he was, this is a few number of years ago, but he said, you know, I've been famous longer than I've been a person. Uh, and it's the way people, you know, respond to you and look at you and all that stuff. But I think that's for some people, you know, fame catches them off guard. See, it's a little different now because I think fame is equity now. I mean, you know, it's currency. People are looking for fame and they just want the fame. They don't care if there's anything to underpin it, you know, it just be, just be famous. Right. So it's different than famous if somebody, to be famous. yeah, it's different than if you go and you want to be a writer or you want to be a dancer or a singer or an actor or whatever, and then you become famous, right. you know, it may be hard because your main uh, thrust is to, you know, do your work. Right. Just do your work. You enjoy doing your work. And so the work you get... occupies a whole bunch of your time. Yeah, and that's what you want to do. So, I mean, if you become famous, then then that, that's the second thing. And you go, ooh, what is this? How do I deal with this? But there are people now where fame is the currency, and the people are just trying to be famous. Have you seen fame wear down some of the friends around you? Um, not, not my friends because they all have a pretty, you know, level head when it comes to that stuff. And I wouldn't be close friends with them if they were, you know, uh, outsized. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just wouldn't be, uh, but you've seen it, uh, friends. Of oh friends. yeah. I've seen it. I see, you see it happen all the time. You know, people are jumping the shark right and left. Yeah. Does that, does that pain you? Uh, it doesn't pain me. I think it pains them. You know? <laughs> it's true. It's interesting, the, you know, the thing you mentioned about the idea of fame being more important than the work that gets you there. I wonder, yeah, well, that's, what, that's what's happened now. I wonder what it says about people, though, that that's the, the kind of people we're producing. Well, it's weird. It's a weird time. I saw this documentary years ago. It's called We Live in Public. And it's about this guy who basically was the inventor of like the precursor to even MySpace, you know, it was real early social media stuff. And he had given it up and whatever. And he, uh, he said at the beginning of the documentary, he said, you know, Andy Warhol had it wrong. He says, we don't, we don't want 15 minutes of fame. People don't want 15 minutes of fame. They want 15 minutes of fame every day. And that's <laughs> where we are now with social media. It's like, it's look at me, look at me, look at me. It's the likes, it's the, you know, the retweets, whatever it is, you know. But you don't need that. No, I mean, at this point, I don't need, you know, the only thing it's good for me is it helps get you a platform and to get you a table at a restaurant. Right. You know, but I mean, I've had that, you know, I've had all that stuff. So Are you to, still getting tables at restaurants? I, I st Not always. I get them most of the time, but, you know, there's a lot of young people who don't know who the hell I am. So, you know, it's so funny when I did, um, I, you know, my daughter, when she was young, she loved uh, Miley Cyrus. Right. She loved Hannah Montana. So I took her down to the studio so because it was, you know, audience. We watch a show, watch a show. And the producer says to me, do you want to be on an episode? And I didn't really want to be on an episode, but 
you know, my wife's there. She said, you go on for your daughter. You go on. Right. So a few weeks later. Do your late, parental duty. Do it, do it, do it, do it. So for a few weeks later, I, I you know, I did an episode of, of Hannah Montana. And then, you know, these kids would come up to me and say, hey, you're the guy on Hannah Montana. Now, you got to understand, 50-year career, and I'm reduced to, yeah, you're the guy on Hannah Montana. Well, look, yeah. what, what are you going to do? They don't know the American they know. president. And the same thing is, you know, on the, when I played uh, Zoe Deschanel's uh, father on, right. on New Girl, people say, yeah, you're, you're the guy on New Girl. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. You know, instead of worrying about fame, you've managed to just keep working and working. Yeah, I just, I like to work. Right. I like it. It, it gives me a lot of pleasure. And, uh, you know, I always say, you know, to anybody, he says, find something you like to do that you're good at because you're going to be spending a big portion of your life doing that. Yeah. So you might try to find those things, you know, if you can, if you can. Is it hard to balance, you know, you, you got remarried in 1989. Right. And you are, you know, directing a film pretty much every year, at least every two to three years. Right. From about 84 to 2000. Right. Is it hard balancing, you know, having three kids and getting married? It, it, it is hard. All that stuff is hard. And also, you know, I'm very politically active. And in 1998, I passed a, a ballot measure in California that right. raised cigarette taxes, uh, 50 cents a pack, and generated at the time about $750 million a year for early childhood programs. And then I was asked by Governor Davis at the time to chair the state commission that oversaw the implementation of it. And so that was a real tough thing because now I'm spending, and I did that for like seven years. So during that period, I made like maybe one or two films. I didn't make many films. I didn't really have the time and you have children. And so you got to just figure out what it is you want to do. I mean, how do you, you know, you balance it. Is it hard sustaining a, an active marriage? Well, we're very close. We're like good, best friends. I mean, we're really good good friends with each other. And um, See, men and women can be friends. Well, we are. You know, we're friends. We were friends before. And we've done a lot of political things together. And on Shock and Awe was the first time that Michelle worked as a producer. And I was a little nervous about it because I'd never... You know, we'd never done anything because you're together all all day and all night, and you're always together. And I got nervous. I thought, oh, no, I don't know if I could. Be. And it turned out great. I mean, it turned out really good. We got along great. We enjoyed doing it. And uh, that was a great gift. That was a great discovery. That she can do that. Well, that we can do it together, that we can enjoy it. Now, you know, we can do things together. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. You know, speaking of political, 1995... My favorite movie that you've made, uh, The American President, came out. I don't know why that's my favorite, but it, mm. it's one I watched as a kid with my mother at around like age 12. Wow. Did you get it all? I mean, did you understand it all? I, I mean, I got what I got yeah, yeah. at that age, yeah, yeah, and, and I've yeah. seen it many times since. Yeah, <clears throat> That movie is so lovely. It is so. Thanks. It, it is so. You know, I don't. I don't even mean to say this. It's like a complimentary. Yeah. It's more like, how did that even happen? How did that thing come together? Well, that's a, that's a weird story because there was an originally a project that Robert Redford owned the rights to, and it was called "The President Elopes," 
And it was a, basically a ro romantic comedy. It didn't have a lot of political aspects to it. It was mostly, you know, if a president has to date, how does he go about that and all that? And he had had many, many scripts written by different writers over the course of many years and never got anything he liked. And somebody said to me, do you want to meet with Redford about this? And I met and we, I said, well... If I know this Aaron Sorkin, who I just worked with on on uh, a few, few good, good men, and I thought, well, if I bring him in, maybe we could do something. And we, neither of us, neither Aaron nor I, ever read any of the fourteen different drafts by other writers. We just had an idea of how we were going to go about it. Aaron's big issue at the time was a gun control. My big issue was the environment. So we said, okay, let's see if we can work these. Uh, political themes into the into the story, and then we wrote, we worked on it together over a period of about a year or so, and then Redford, you know, he didn't want to do it. I mean, I think he had a different vision of what he wanted to do, but the arrangement that he made with me, which was really nice, is he said, I said, listen, what if I work on this and I get it to where I really like it, and then you don't want to do it, then I, I I want to be able to do it. And he said, okay, that would be fine. And he agreed to that. So we went ahead with it. I had the same thing with, uh, you know, I worked with Warren Beatty for a long time on Misery. And uh, Warren was, he was great. I mean, he basically, he helped get the script in shape. I mean, he was like a tremendous uh, plus for, for what I was trying to do. And then I got it to where I liked it. And then he still was hesitant about doing it, but but he didn't have the rights to it. In the case of Redford, he owned the rights, but he let me do it anyway. Yeah. Was there ever an instance in your career where you had to really talk an actor into doing something? I've never been able to do that. Never I'm, been able to? No. You know why? Because I will send something to an actor if I think that actor can do it. And if he thinks he can do it, he'll say yes. And if he says, no, it's not for me, I just let it go because... I never want to force or push somebody to do something they may not want to do. I want them to come to the project with the same kind of, you know, enthusiasm and desire to want to do it. So I never push people like that. What if they want to do it, but they're afraid of doing it like Warren? Well, you know, I pushed him to, to do it because he said he wanted to, but then he wouldn't commit. He had a hard time committing. He couldn't commit. And, uh... He has that problem, you know, and I used to say to him all the time, you know, you're constipated. And he said, don't you know that? I know that. I just, you know, anyway, we got into, I listen, I love Warren. He's brilliant and, you know, but he just couldn't get off the dime. And I, I like to work. I like to get to work. Right. There's a story I like about him that uh, I think Paul Thomas Anderson told once. And he was like, you know, he sent the script of Boogie Nights to Warren to play the role. The Burt Reynolds role? The yeah. Burt Reynolds role. <clears throat> and Warren read it, called him, and he said, I love it. I love it so much. But throughout the duration of the call, he was trying to convince Paul Thomas Anderson that, you know, I would really like to play the Dirk Diggler role. That was still his mindset in like 97. Right. right. I want to play the, the young stud. guy who I has be a the big stud. dick. Yeah, yeah, the stud. Yeah, and yeah. I just that story to me is yeah, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he told me one time they had asked him to play uh, Superman in the original, you know, the first the Superman, 
And he thought, gee, Superman, I get to be Superman, you know? So he took the costume, he had the costume, he put it on, he tried, he took it home, and he put it on, he looked, and he says, who am I kidding? I can't do this. I can't be in this, in this costume. Okay, I have some big, because we have about 20 minutes left here. Okay. And uh, I don't know if we're ever going to see each other again. Maybe. You never know. You never know. You never know. You never know. But I want to ask some big questions. Okay. Career-spanning questions. Is there a time in your career where you felt you have been slighted in a way? Like a thing that happened in Hollywood that you're like, I cannot believe all this madness happened and that happened to me. No. Never? No. No. Unfazed. No, it's not a month phase. I mean, it's like you know, what what could happen in <laughs> what could happen in Hollywood that would feel like, oh my God, this is terrible. I've been slighted. It's movies. You're making movies. People get very personal about it. Come on, you know that people get yeah, very personal, but very I can, angry. I can tell you, here's here's what I learned very early on. <laughs> Because I've gotten terrible reviews and great reviews, whatever. But I, when all the family first became successful, I, you know, I'm walking around. The guy comes up to me and he says, that's all in the family. That is the best show on television. I just think it's such a good show. It's the best show on television. That and the Beverly Hillbillies are the two best shows. <laughs> and I got it right away. It just clicked in. I said, oh, okay, I get this. I get this. This is not about... What other people are thinking or what they're, you know, what they decided you, you have to know what you're doing and stick with what you're doing. And if you are realizing what you're doing, then, then that's it. It's that, that line in Wimbledon, you know, victory and, and defeat. If you can accept those two imposters equally, then you're fine. You're fine. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice you were given by a, a colleague or a, a mentor? The best piece of advice. I can say that the best advice that I got was not verbal so much as I was very lucky that I had my father and Norman Lear as two people, that two adults that I could look up to. And the advice that I got from them, which was not something directly, was how they lived their lives and how they uh, handled their careers and how, in Norman's case, how he was able to mix <laughs> politics I and mean, use his notoriety to uh, interject politics into it. So that's the best advice I got is just to see how people were able to live and do their work. Yeah. You know, Norman came on the show uh, last year. Oh yeah. He's got a podcast. He does. Yeah. Uh, and I've been on his show. I know. I, 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 I listen to some of that. He talks about, you know, the idea of, of being, in the moment of living your days for each moment that's, that you're in. That's all you have. I mean, right now, we're having this. We're having this conversation, and this is all we have. And then we'll have another moment, and then it'll be over. And so if you're not, where else are you living? <laughs> you know what I mean? A lot of people, I think, are uh, adrift. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, but the whole goal is to try to find a peace within yourself so that you can live in those moments. And what you discover is that you can get as much pleasure opening a can of apple juice as you can doing something else. Because if you're with yourself and you have yourself, then, you know, whatever you're doing, it's okay. <laughs> What's something you wish you knew uh, about, like, my age 
that you now know? I wish that I had not been as anxious as I was to succeed and to be accepted, whatever, that I worked very hard for that. And that I, if I, you know, but you can't know because you don't feel comfortable with yourself. You don't know who you are. And so you're working very hard to get approval from outside. Uh, And I wish I had not spend time doing that. Now I don't look for that kind of approval necessarily. I don't. You don't look for it? No, no, because I'm more self-contained than I, than I was then. <laughs> what have you learned about being married? I mean, you're, 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 you're going to be married. Uh, It'll God be thir- 30, 30 years, years next, next year. year. Yeah, 30 yeah. years next year. What do you, what do you now know about that? Well, I know that uh, you got to marry somebody that you can hang with. Somebody that you, you know, that you're on a same intellectual level that you can actually uh, enjoy talking to and then uh, experiencing things with. That, that's re- you find a, a good friend, somebody that you can really hang with. And the other thing, my mother said this and, uh, years ago. They, uh, she passed away, uh, let's see now, it's ooh, almost, almost 10 years ago. But she, uh, when they were married 60 years, they had their anniversary, and uh they asked her, what's the, what's the, you know, the secret to 60 years married? And she said, find somebody who can stand you. <laughs> it's not find somebody you can stand, you can put up with. Find somebody who can stand you because everybody's got their problems and their issues. You got to find somebody that can hang with you. <laughs> Do you think you're uh, easy to stand? No, not necessarily. I don't think so. I'm not like, I mean, oddly enough, I've become easier going than I used to be. I used to be like a crazy maniac, you know, now I'm... When was that? Oh, you know, my 20s, my teens, 20s, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, I've I've calmed down a lot and uh, I'm, I'm a lot easier than I was. You know, this brings me exactly to the thing I've wanted to ask you the whole time, which is that we have been going over your life. Yeah, we've covered a lot of ground. And a little bit of mine in the last uh, hour. And I guess I want to know, person to person, when yeah. we're here at this moment, how and where you found some sort of like good mental health. That's what, when I talk to you, that's the impression I get, Rob. Is yeah, that- well, I, 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 it's taken a long time. I've spent a lot of time in various psychiatrists' office. At one point, I, was, I went for nine years straight, six days a week. A lot of self-introspection, uh, a lot of work on myself. That's a and lot of days. It is. It is. Um, and, you know, uh, it's always a work in progress. And you're never—there's no such thing as a cure. You don't—but the more you know about who you are— the more you know about why you do certain things and how you behave, the better you're going to be in terms of managing your life. So when I was younger, I used to get very anxious about things. And I even had anxiety attacks and things like that. When I understood the basis of those attacks, what caused them, why I would get that way, it allowed me to diffuse it before it got out of control. In other words, I would identify what it was that was causing me to have that kind of anxiety. And uh, so now, I, I, you know, I haven't had anxiety attacks in a long time. And if I even feel a little bit anxious, I can, you know, reference back. The other thing is, is, is meditation. 
meditation is a great thing, and I think any, everybody can benefit from it. Um, you know, I, I learned TM, but I mean, there's different types of meditation. I don't do it all the time, but if I feel a little anxious, I'll stop for a second and then I'll, you know, go into a, you know, even five minutes for a breathing thing. And I just, and I, you know, I, 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 you know, level myself out. What have you discovered about yourself? I think I'm a decent person. You know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know uh, what else. I mean, uh, I know that I'm, uh, you know, I'm not, Mr. Party guy, I, you know, I, I'm homebody. I like to, you know, I read, I do crosswords. I like things on television. I'm like, I'm not, uh, but I also can go out and perform if I have to, you know, if I want to get some, an idea across on a stage or whatever. Perform if you have to. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right now. I mean, it's, this is the most non-performing podcast I've ever done, but in general, when you do these kinds of things, you're you're performing in some in some way, you know. <laughs> well, you know what I uh... because most times, you know, if you're going to have a conversation with somebody, you're not going to be sitting across from each other with headphones on, speaking into a microphone. You're going to be at a restaurant or somebody's house, and and it's a, you know, so it's never exactly real, but it's as close as you can come to real without. Without the, you know, putting the headphones on. Well, you know what? I appreciate you uh, performing just a little tiny bit. You have to. Yeah, you have, you have to. to. But uh, I'm so glad you came on. And yeah. It's an honor to have you. Thanks. Rob Reiner. So long. Goodbye. Special thanks this week to Alexandra and Grace at MPRM for hosting this episode of the show. If you want to see Shock and Awe, Rob's latest film, you can do so at your local theater. Check your listings. But if it's not playing at a theater near you, check out iTunes and Amazon. It is a day and date film and uh, it is worth your time. If you'd like to find out more about Rob and the movie, you can do so at our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com You can also follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at TalkEasyPod and uh, I'm going to be more persistent about this over the next 100 episodes because making a podcast when you are not doing it for a company or even um, a larger entity that is paying you is really, really hard and uh, if you like this show and you care about what we are doing I really do encourage you to review the show on iTunes. Sure, if you hate doing that, if you can't seem to do that or want to do that, um, just sharing the show on social media or with a friend really does help uh, new people find this podcast. And look, the more new people that find this thing, um, the longer we can continue doing it. As always, Talk Easy is executive produced by David Chen. 
Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our intern is Elliot Weintraub. And the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week with Alan Alda. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.